Hiya, Becky here from the New Economics Foundation. In episode six of A Beginner's Guide to Neoliberalism, we're looking at the alternatives. But the original episode was recorded back in August 2015, and obviously a lot has changed in the last four years. The good news is James and Kirsty will be back next week for a special up-to-date episode on all the latest work to find alternatives to neoliberalism. But for now, on with the show. James is not the banter person. <laughs> I'm a serious person. I am the Ernie Wise in this particular relationship, unfortunately. That's another reference to when James last watched television. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, my name is Kirsty Styles, and welcome to A Beginner's Guide to Neoliberalism, Episode 6. In this episode, we're looking at the alternatives to the ideology that we've come to know, but perhaps not love, over the past five weeks. There is no alternative. If there was another way, some easier way, I would take it. But there is no alternative. No Your new National Health Service begins on the 5th of July. What is it? How do you get it? This new health service will be organised on a national scale as a public responsibility. When you're ill, you won't have to pay for treatment. The globalised free market experiment of the last 30 years has failed us. It's time to look for new alternatives. It's all in the word cooperation. The fracking at Balkan made people look more closely at alternatives and the benefits of alternatives. Countries that have a mixed economy, by UN rankings, these are the best countries in the world to live in. So James, throughout this series, we've been talking about neoliberalism, the rules of the game of capitalism made up by a bunch of economists after the Second World War. We've talked about how these rules swept the world and dominated politics and wider culture since the late 1970s. If you wanted our listeners to know three things about neoliberalism after listening to this series, what would those three things be? Well, the three things you picked up on it, really. The thing to really bear in mind is that this this is about the rules. It's not the game itself. The game itself is capitalism. It's how you end up playing the game. And what you've got with neoliberalism is a fairly clear set of principles, of rules, that ideally can be applied in all circumstances and tell everyone what they're supposed to be doing. So you're looking here at free markets, uh, often combined with the rhetoric about individual choice, uh, that there should be a limited role for government. As far as possible, government should really not do very much unless they absolutely have to. Uh, And then, of course, you've also got this kind of business or corporate freedom that basically private enterprises know best about how to make their own decisions and how to make decisions for wider society. And these these are kind of the sets of rules that get applied right way across the world in the neoliberal period. Okay, so that's the three main principles of neoliberalism we've got. We've got individual choice, free enterprise egged on by privatisation, and of course, the limited role of government, except for uh, when we're promoting markets. So... No one wants to go back to the 70s, though, James, do they? You know, bad hair, bad trousers. You know, just look at the declining global poverty over this period. Free markets deliver the results, right? Well, it's, I mean, look, this isn't about turning the clock back to, to some point in 1973 or, or whenever seems seems appropriate here. It was a, what's the issue here is that you need to think of some kind of alternative. I mean, take the decline in, in poverty, which just gets uh, highlighted, declining global poverty over the last 30 years or so. This is almost entirely due to what's happened in China. Now, China has gone through a kind of neoliberal process. There has been this introduction of free market principles on a very, very grand scale. And the transformation of Chinese society and economies is huge. I mean, this is like... Some 
something that dwarfs really the industrial revolution just in terms of the human scale involved but it's not really a neoliberal society it's a society where large chunks of the economy remain in state hands that if you look over the last 30 years or so neoliberalism has always been kind of contested and is increasingly so over the last 10 years over the period since the east asian crisis starts the 90s and then of course since the financial crisis uh, back in 2008 and what we're talking about here is how can you contest these things how can you get a better set of outcomes for for most of the people in the world and what different alternatives what different principles might you apply to this okay so we're here to talk about the alternatives so we'll take each of those principles on one by one so limited government except for the maximum promotion of markets everywhere what are the alternatives to markets james and and why do we need one how else could we organize our economy well, the thing about markets is they, they tend to be good at a very, very limited set of things. You can kind of promote some kinds of consumer choice through markets pretty effectively, but they have all these side effects. And the, the most obvious ones, I suppose, are they tend to promote inequality. An unrestrained market tends to mean that the people who have wealth already just get richer and richer on the back of this. That that's kind of how a market functions. And the other one is that they're just really bad at dealing with big collective social goods. So you might think the environment is, is an obvious one. The markets in general can't deal when you have uh, a situation in which you want to try and provide some collective social good that everybody can take part in. Markets just aren't really capable of doing that. There's lots of ways you might think about how you produce and distribute resources instead. Various forms of, of common ownership. You could have the government, the state owns things. You can have a kind of cooperative ownership where the people who work for an enterprise own it. You can have a sort of local uh, ownership or a community ownership where a group of people who are near a particular resource choose to own it and they exercise that that function there. All of these things are different ways of organising a society that don't depend quite on the, on the structure of private enterprise and free markets that neoliberalism insists on. Can you give me an example of where common ownership of resources is working in the world today? Well, there's an interesting one here, which is uh, Welsh water. It's, as with the rest of water supplies in, in this country, privatised uh, way back in the, in the 1990s by the, the government at the time. Uh, the provider of that water service effectively was facing bankruptcy. So you ended up with it being taken over by some of the people who worked and managed at Welsh Water and turned into what amounts to a kind of collectively owned uh, limited company, where the aim of Welsh Water is to say, rather than making a profit which goes to shareholders, the profit goes back to its customers, which turns into basically having a lower water bill. And at the same time, it's been able to drive through much, much higher rates of investment than than other uh, privately owned and profit-making water companies everywhere. So you get lower bills and you get higher investment, you get better quality water and you get this through a form of collective provision. I really hope Welsh water has dragons in it. So what about free enterprise, James? Do you really want to restrict business from just getting on with it? Well, the, the issue here, I suppose, is what you want business to do and how, what kind of outcomes you want. If you just sort of blindly say, under all circumstances, it will be better if business automatically is allowed to do what it wants and this is just going to produce the best result for society. This is this is an extremely dogmatic, first of all, way of approaching the issue. And it isn't likely, uh, as we touched on, to, to give you the best results in all circumstances, particularly where you have big collective social goods, things of this ilk. So you don't necessarily want uh, businesses to provide everything that 
can exist. You want to talk about maybe introducing different ways of managing businesses and of having different forms of ownership, collective ownership, uh, common ownership. It doesn't have to be the government. It could be, for instance, a local community owning uh, their local renewable energy sources, wind farms in particular, an interesting example here, which happens on a very large scale in places like Denmark and a somewhat reduced scale uh, here. You can have all these things happening and you can get different and better outcomes if you start to think about not just having a private enterprise and saying profit will determine what everything else is going to look like and profit will give you a guide as to best outcome for society. But if you start saying perhaps there are wider goals that need to be addressed here. Okay, so can you give me an example of where collective provision beats free markets in the world today? Yeah, there are examples. I mean, we've got a very, very large example of uh, a more effective form of collective provision than, than private provision. If you just compare the the NHS, National Health Service, you know, hugely popular uh, institution, is a very, very effective provider of healthcare. If you compare it to a much more dramatically uh, an obvious comparison, uh, free market provider in the form of the US healthcare system. I mean, just in terms of efficiency, the US healthcare system uh, accounts for about 17% of USG. GDP. It's a huge, huge business, profit-making business over there. But that still leaves a good 13-14% of the US population without any form of uh, health insurance. They're just not covered. If you take the NHS, we spend about 9-10% of GDP in healthcare here, and that's 100% insurance. Absolutely everyone is covered by the NHS. So it's just much more effective at delivering the sort of things that people want to see than the equivalent privatised healthcare system would be. Okay, that all sounds well and good, James, but Individual choice. That's the thing that means I can buy crunchy peanut butter rather than smooth, right? Do we really need an alternative to that? Well, individual choice, no, but I think the the point here is to somewhat decouple it from what the neoliberal ideology and the neoliberal thinking attaches it to, which is that this is always best reconciled through uh, free market provision, that if you have a free market, you will get people more able to express their individual choices. Now, to a very limited extent, you can sort of see that, you know, you go to the shops and you've got an individual choice between crunchy peanut butter or smooth peanut butter as, as the fancy takes you. You know, that seems like a, a fairly you know, it's a fairly inane thing. And on the whole, markets are quite good at allowing people to make decisions that won't determine their lives and won't affect other people too much. It's when you get into bigger questions, like will this choice damage the environment? Will this choice have an impact on other people? That markets tend to be really ineffective because it boils it all down to how much money do you have and what are you going to do with that money? So you need to kind of crack that relationship, allow individual choice, but think of other different ways of distributing and organising resources in society. Does all of this just amount to a return to the way we manage things in the 1970s, though? Does any of this fit in the iPhone-wielding 21st century? Well, this is this is usually the charge, and I don't think it holds up particularly well. What you see emerging, particularly precisely through changes in technology and the creation of the internet, the creation and expansion of telecommunications on a, on a massive scale, is the possibility of working in different non-market ways, that you can have people collaborating enormously on something like Wikipedia, that you have people voluntarily using their time to produce this immensely useful resource using the technology in the most incredibly sophisticated 21st century way and doing it all really without reference to to a free market or the need to insist on a a giant corporation organising all of this. So I think all of these principles, all of these different ways of thinking about how you organise the world are, are relevant now. 
And yes, we need to consider different issues, I think, to, to the 70s. This isn't about turning the clock back. If you take the environment, if you take climate change, this just isn't really an issue. I mean, it's emerging as an issue, but it's not really an issue in the same way it's, a, it's an absolutely uh, you know, civilization-wide issue as it is today. So, of course, you need to consider that. You need to consider the distribution of power as well as wealth. You need to consider how you democratise institutions, how you change how people work with each other. You need to think about these things in a way that, again, the kind of classic period of, of nationalisation, the rest of it, didn't quite do. And of course, you perhaps need to think about, and now we have the capacity to think seriously about how we use our time and how we use the capacity of automation, the capacity that we have to, to work differently and how we can start to regain control over our working lives and, of course, the time we spend not working. Well, that, James, as they say, is, is economic history from inflatable Hayek to Dancing with Thatcher to the present day and hopefully into a brighter future. That was A Beginner's Guide to Neoliberalism. James, thanks so much for giving us your time and your knowledge. Audience at home, thanks so much for listening. And just one final thing, James. Yes. <laughs> the choice between crunchy and smooth is not made as it takes your fancy. Go crunchy or go home. help us touch more ears with our kick-ass brand of economicsy goodness uh, please subscribe on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts leave us a cheeky rating unless it's just the one star and tell all you see on facebook twitter myspace and that new hip cool platform that i'm certainly not aware of yet we'll be back at the same time next week the weekly economics podcast is brought to you by the new economics foundation an independent think tank and charity that campaigns for a fairer, sustainable economy. Find out more and get involved at neweconomics.org.